Good evening. The reading is from Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 12. You can find that on page 725. Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and to taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? 
He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength not one of them is missing that flip back a page everyone to 725 if you would so that we've got it open in front of us and let me lead us in prayer We want to obey that command this evening, Father, and lift up our eyes to not just the heavens, but to you. And we pray with that understanding that comes only from you, that we lack understanding. We don't have the answers, but you do. We pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts then to receive the truth and we ask open our mouths to declare it to others as well we ask it in jesus name amen there is a story told about the uh, great 16th century german reformer martin luther who was apparently given to depression there was a time when he was absolutely exhausted a bit crushed by the opposition he had the whole time and he'd been in a gloomy mood for days so he was bad company, he was terrible to live with, and his wife, Katie, decided it was time to do what she could to help him. And the next morning, therefore, Luther woke up, and to his surprise, his wife was sobbing into her pillow. What's the matter, he asked. But there was no reply. Well, Luther had anxieties and pain enough of his own, so off he went into the task of the day. But the next time their paths crossed, he found her clothes from head to foot in black. She was obviously in mourning. Katie, my dear, he asked, is this why you were crying? Yes, she said. But I didn't know anyone had died, said Martin. Was it someone important to us? Yes, she said, I'm surprised you didn't know. I thought I heard the news from you. Everything you've said and done this last week has been so lacking in hope, I could only assume one thing. Surely God has died. Now, that's a story which Isaiah might well have had some sympathy with. In his own day, um, there were circumstances which might cause his contemporaries to be gloomy about things. And certainly before long, down the track, when the Jews were going to be carted off into exile in Babylon, they could easily feel then that the situation was bleak. But as long as the God of Israel was alive and well there could be no cause for despair. God had not died. So in the verses we've got today, um, Isaiah introduces us to two wonderful truths about God. He is the maker of all, and then uh, more briefly we'll see he is the master of all. And those two truths, which we're actually all too prone to forget when things get on top of us, their medicine for the soul, for all of us. We meet him first in our passage as the maker of the universe. And that's really in, well, if you want a whole section, verses 12 to 20, it takes us over the page in the end to where we finish up. But let's go back to verse 12 and talk about a string of questions that are met with a deafening silence in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? 
or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who's held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Which is enough to take your breath away, isn't it, those questions? As God reminds them of the day when he held in his hand every drop of water that went up to make the oceans. So the vast volume of water that fills the mid-Atlantic trench didn't fill a tiny furrow on my hand, says God. Anyone else think they can say that? What about the huge expanse of the heavens? God says, can anyone else join me in claiming to have fixed their limits? There were some astronomers who tried to calculate the size of our galaxy, just the galaxy note, and they reckoned that if you scaled it down so that our sun was the size of an orange, well, the Earth would be the size of a a grain of sand 30 feet away. And the galaxy, of course, would be made up of 100 billion oranges, each over 1,000 miles apart from its neighbor. I don't know how they work these things out, but still it's pretty amazing. And that, if we're to take this seriously, feels to God like the distance from his thumb to his little finger, a span. What if we were to turn from the massive to the minuscule, asks God. Get your microscopes out. How many millions of dust particles are there in the world? Does anyone want to say that they put the dust in place when they created the world? No. And, God adds, let me tell you that the mountains were every bit as easy to position as dust. I weighed them out and on a set of scales. Obviously, we're not supposed to understand this literally as if God literally had hands and baskets and scales available to him. Isaiah's just using all our familiar measuring devices and applying them to God's formation of the universe. We use a basket to pick up a few things quickly at a supermarket. Well, it's that easy for God to gather up the dust. A cook uses some scales to weigh out exactly half a pound of flour in the kitchen. God did that with precision and ease when he positioned the mountains, all six miles high of Mount Everest included. He made the lot, and therefore he is mightier than the lot. Now, if creation is great, then obviously the mind behind creation is greater still, and that's Isaiah's conclusion in verses 13 and 14. The questions go on. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? I suppose over the last hundred years, our knowledge of the universe has grown a great deal, Um, But any scientist worthy of the name knows that we've only grasped the fringe of what there is to understand. But God has always been in possession of all the facts. So he never needed instruction or advice to make the universe. And of course, that's just as well because there was nobody available to offer instruction anyway. Then what we get is the implications of God's creative power. They follow in the next few verses. For a start, the nations are nothing. Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. 
he weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And the relevance of that, if you think about it, to the tiny little nation of Judah, as these words were first said, they're hemmed in on every side by stronger nations. Well, the nations that dwarf Judah are just like dust or a drop of water in a bucket. Babylon, just a little drip. Or take just one of those other nations. Lebanon, verse 16, is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. And the point there is Lebanon was a country that was famous for its forests full of massive cedar trees. It has vast herds of cattle as well. So God says, look, take a flight of fancy with your mind. If you construct a huge bonfire out of all the wood and you place all the cattle on top, God would still have to sort of stoop down, maybe even get out a magnifying glass to notice it. And we might change the metaphor a bit. If we gathered all the stone in the entire country and built something on the pattern of King's College Chapel, using all of the stone, and we filled the chapel with a choir of thousands, God would still actually have to sort of cup an ear, round, a hand round his ear and say, sorry, I didn't quite catch that. That's the scale he's on. So sacrifices, or what we offer in our buildings, are in one sense not that impressive. He doesn't need our supplies. He's the one that supplies our needs. And whatever is a nation's pride and joy, or its wealth, that is as nothing. Before him all the nations are as nothing, verse 17. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing, because he's the creator. Well, of course, the nation-states are dwarfed by his size and stature. So what's his conclusion as he takes this further through the course of the chapter? If God is the maker, then man-made gods, our substitute gods, are of no value at all. Verse 18, with whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. And that's going to be very apt for Isaiah's hearers because they felt themselves outclassed by other nations meant that inevitably they're tempted to turn to other nations' gods. If the other nations were superior, stronger, they reason, well, maybe their gods are superior and stronger. And Isaiah just laughs at that. How can you compare the God who made everything with a man-made God? And just look how weak our creative efforts are. Chances are, he says, that the religious statue you commission will rot to nothing. Or if your carpenter wasn't much good, the statue's just going to topple over. See how strong the idols are? Compared to God the creator, they're just pushovers. Weak. So how crazy, he's saying, for us ever to turn to man-made gods, created things for our support, when God our maker is well able to support us if we'll only trust him. 
Well, they did it then, and we do it all the time, maybe in slightly different ways. In our multicultural world, we probably need to say that Isaiah would rule out here all non-biblical religions as man-made and therefore as deceptive, idolatrous lies. And even if we feel we're above worshipping statues, perhaps it doesn't take much for me to show you how we worship what we've made today in other ways. Somebody once said that the typical Englishman is a self-made man who worships his creator. Busy worshipping ourselves all the time. And you can tell when we're worshipping at the shrine of self, when you see your identity in whatever capacity, as a professional, as a parent, as a follower of a sports team, as a resident of an upmarket Cambridge suburb, or ideologies as a champion of human rights. You see your identity in those things. You see yourself as the life of the soul and soul of the party. And you see those sort of identity markers as the decisive thing about yourself. And your identification with God is remote or non-existent. They're the things that matter about me, the sort of things I've listed. If my sense of who I am is tied up with those things and not in God, that will show itself in all sorts of ways, in the dedicated thinking and planning that I give those things ahead of God. Now, we could be worshipping tangible things like money or possessions, but it could be intangible things. We can be greedy and obsessive about lots of other things, from fame and fortune to our privacy, our good housekeeping. I might be a workaholic or a devoted follower of fashion, or over-devoted to my family, over and above a relationship with God. Family, someone's called the noblest form of atheism in our country today. Or it could be an idea. That sort of thing sometimes can command people's devotion, in which we allow just to influence us too much. Some ideology or worldview which so takes over our thinking that that becomes a substitute God. And you think of the various isms that have held people captive over the last couple of hundred years. Marxism, racism, postmodernism, Freudianism, feminism even. If that were to become an absolutist ideology for us. See, they often begin with an idea that's good, but that idea takes over And what was a good servant quickly becomes a bad master. Any God we have, he's saying, will always disappoint. And, of course, how many of those gods have actually already rotted and toppled to the point where they aren't really worshipped anymore, if you think about it. But he's saying, look, if we had a clear sense of God as our maker, we'd never turn to those things anyway. What an insult to turn to created things or ideologies as props when the creator is obviously able to care for us. Well, the next few verses, I think we're over the page, aren't we? Over the page, verse 21 and onwards, we see God not simply as maker but as master. So what he shaped, of course, He sustains. What he created, he controls and cares for lovingly. Second by second, 
year by year, century by century, he's absolutely on the throne. 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Haven't you understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, spreads them out like a tent to live in. Of course, this is nothing new. That's why Isaiah says, do you not know? Yes. Have you not heard? Answer, yes. Hasn't it been told you from the beginning? Yes. This is lesson one in All Saints Kids. He is the creator and the controller, the maker and the master. It's just that too easily we forget the truths about God, which we've known forever. And our knowledge of God needs continually to be reactivated and reapplied in every new situation. Now, he's on the throne, he's outside the world's orbit, and we are like little grasshoppers. One of the commentators describes grasshoppers as little squeaky creatures bouncing up and down, bound by time and space. And that's you and me compared to Almighty God who stretches out the heavens like a canopy. And, of course, the great ones of our world are actually no greater than the smallest. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Just a puff is all it takes for the whirlwind to remove them. That's Isaiah's comment on world history. He looks at Nebuchadnezzar, who was coming down the track in uh, 100 plus years. And he'd move quickly on to Alexander the Great if he was doing a review beyond that, casting his eye down the years to come. Then Caesar, then William the Conqueror, then Richard the Lionheart, then Napoleon, then Lenin and Mao. Maybe we've got to add other things like the ISIL Caliphate, the British Empire, the EU. United States with its manifest destiny. And it's as if he asks, fast forward a few centuries, where are they now? They're gone. No sooner are they planted, God blows on them and they're gone. People who flicked their fingers and servants came running for them, armies mustered, nations quaking, they're gone. Only one being, has any effective, lasting rule, the God who is master of the universe. So once again, he has to ask, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? I rule over every second of time and every molecule of creation. So lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Moreover, who keeps the whole show on the road? Answer, He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. In other words, if the stars came out tonight, they did. It's only because God said to each one, go out and do it again. He marshals the stars. 
just as easily as he marshals world rulers. He's the master of the universe. So I think we sometimes think that God is only at work in mighty power when some obvious dramatic event happens. A healing miracle at a church. The Berlin Wall coming down. Communism collapsing. But the universe isn't like some sort of engine with God occasionally just sort of tinkering and fiddling around with it as a hobby. He doesn't just lay on the occasional magic sideshow. He's involved in the whole lot the whole time. He's the master of the universe. In fact, if he were to relax his control over one little atom for one little moment, the result would be cosmic chaos. But he doesn't. And Isaiah calls on us to reckon on that in good times and bad times. When our families are well and our finances are healthy and when our job is snatched away or a dear friend or relative dies. Got to see beyond the immediate circumstances to God's controlling hand. Fate is not in control. The stars are not in control. Good news, man's folly doesn't have the last word. Satan's malice is not in control. God is the maker and the master of everything. Maybe he's working out things a little slower than we would like. But remember verse 13, who's understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as counselor? It's completely inappropriate for us to give him advice on how to run the world. Completely inappropriate. There are marine, marine scientists who've put a name to something that happens. It's a frightening phenomenon that uh, has been known to seamen for hundreds of years. It comes around occasionally. They call it the 50-year wave, which is basically a sort of giant wave. It's caused by all sorts of things. Um, giant waves caused by earthquakes, I think, are in a separate category to this. But statistics show that Every 50 years, all the right conditions of tide, wind, current, temperature, those sorts of things come together to produce a massive wave which can engulf whatever it might be, an oil platform, an ocean liner in one It's supposed to be the explanation of some disappearances of large ships. And there's an equivalent phenomenon in people's lives where you get a combination of events all happening at once or in succession together which just completely overwhelm and engulf us. And maybe, I suppose, if they came one at a time, we reason we might survive intact. But face them all together, all at once, and understandably we feel like we're submerged. And Isaiah 40 is a reminder to us, if we're in that situation now, God has not died. And of course, on Advent Sunday, with Christmas approaching, we're even better placed to take this truth to heart, aren't we? Because that was the point in history at which the maker became part of his creation. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man, says John Donne. The one who rules over time and space came within time and space to make it clear beyond doubt that he is there And he does care. The one who Isaiah saw right at the start of his prophecy, it's there in chapter 6, on a throne, 
gave up his throne for a brief period and lived just as a normal human being. He even died on a cross, rejected, as we'll remember in Bread and Wine in a moment. He wasn't like the world rulers we read about in Isaiah 40. His rule still goes on to this day, and it will go on forever. So no Christian should ever put on mourning for God, because their sovereign king, Jesus, didn't stay dead, but is alive today. No earthly king can beat death and match that. Nothing else we might worship can ever satisfy us as he can. He's our maker and our master. We mustn't turn anywhere else. And of course, wonderfully, we don't need to. Well, let's pray to him and pray that we would know him better. God, we pray you'd forgive us for shrinking you down to a size we can cope with and robbing ourselves as we rob you of the honor and glory that's yours, robbing ourselves because we are the worse off. We thank you that in Jesus Christ we can know you for the awesome, wonderful God that you are. And we dare to ask that you would topple the idols of our hearts so that Jesus can stand alone and supreme, whatever the circumstances of our lives. May Jesus be our Lord and our God, and may he be glorified. We pray it for his sake. Amen. We're going to respond in song now. The musicians are readying themselves to lead us. This you'll recognize as a version, or at least the first.